our speaker asked if you could see Monticello from this room. Now, all those who think you can see Monticello from this room, raise your hand. Never mind. <laughs> you cannot see Monticello from this room because Pavilion 2 is in the way. Pavilion 1. Is, is that Pavilion 1? Pavilion 2, yes? Pavilion 2 is in the way. Otherwise, you could see it. Welcome to Rare Book School. Uh, first week of the second and final summer session of Rare Book School 2002, learned by doing. Our speaker this evening is Robert Gross, who's professor of history at William & Mary. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here tonight. His lecture topic, Seeing the World in Print. Thank you. It, it's wonderful to be here, and if you think with your mind's eye, you can look out and see Monticello while I'm speaking. Um, though I realize that all of you are deeply committed to material forms as students of the book. The talk I'm about to give you is an attempt to think out the problem of reading and writing a history of reading. And I think that it, it bears a relation to what you're doing here. Because I want to pose in the broadest sense the question, what's the relationship between technology, the technology communications, the form of the book, and our experience of that book as readers? Most of what you do at Rare Book School, as I've understood it being here today and from visiting Terry from time to time, involves, if you will, technology in the production of the book, the various ways in which you identify who made it and what kind of paper and who was the binder and the, the diverse ways in which what we read is put together. But how does the technological form affect how we experience that book? There's very little scholarship, I think, on reading and, and experience and the relationship between the experience of reading and our experiences of life. That is to say, What's the connection between what we read in a book and what we know and see in our daily lives? So that's what I mean by seeing the world in print. Um, what I'm about to give you is my attempt to think out the problem of reading, its history, the history of reading practices, and then my reflections on bibliography, the physical form, and the experience of reading and life. So much, of, so much of what I see reminds me of something I read in a book. Shouldn't it be the other way around? So Meg Ryan muses wistfully at the opening of the film You've Got Mail, a romantic comedy co-starring Tom Hanks with a special appeal for lovers and scholars of books. The film, released in 1998, updates a 1940 classic by Ernst Lubitsch for our electronic age. Ryan plays Kathleen Kelly, owner of The Shop Around the Corner, which was actually the title of the Lubitsch film. The Shop Around the Corner, an old-fashioned children's book on Manhattan's west side, whose cozy world is shattered when Fox and Sons, a border-style superstore, opens just a few blocks away. The shop is a neighborhood fixture where Kelly presides as the story lady. 
reading aloud to children, greeting customers by name, and knowing just which book they would like. But how can she compete against the mammoth intruder with its discount prices, espresso bar, gourmet food, and lively entertainment? In this battle of David and Goliath, Kelly faces off against Hanks' Joe Fox, the aggressive scion of the commercial empire, who views business as war and takes no prisoners. It's no contest. Though Kelly puts up a brave fight, the giant wins. The film's more compelling struggle is for the heart, with the sides more even. And the fun lies in watching love conquer all. Romantic comedies fulfill their promise. But then you already knew that from Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) What brings Kelly and Fox together is the most modern matchmaker, email. Having met in that lounge for lonely souls, the chat room, the two carry on an earnest, affectionate exchange of messages, unaware of one another's real identity. She is shop girl, he, NY152. And the brightest spot of their day is the cheery news from America Online, you've got mail, which today might be your stock tank. Anonymity is the key to romance. With no personal baggage, free from worries about looks and charm, the strangers employ the impersonal instrument of electronic communication to express the authentic feelings of the heart. Email proves as vital to courtship as ever were handwritten letters sealed with a kiss. Electronic technology, the driving agent of modern commerce, the secret weapon of mass retailing, that enables Fox and Sons to crush the shop around the corner is simultaneously a transparent window upon the, into the soul. You are what you read, Kelly announces early on. On that principle, she has run her little store and formed her life. You've Got Mail fosters that ideal of reading with a contemporary twist. Kelly's a saint of bookselling, in part because she carries her stores across bequeathed by her beloved mother. Her working days are confined to the narrow limits of the shop. Her evenings spent with a left-wing newspaper columnist whose hostility to computers, he collects old typewriters, which incidentally he might give to the rare book school, (laughs) whose hostility to computers is matched only by his eagerness for publicity. It's a companionable but passionless affair. Not that Joe Fox is doing any better. His longtime lover, a self-absorbed literary agent, pursues dollars as greedily as Joe's father and grandfather who run the family firm. In director Nora Ephron's vision, the whole world of print, authorship, journalism, publishing, and book selling, the whole thing has been corrupted by money and power. Only Kathleen Kelly and her devoted employees love literature for its own sake. Happily, through the auspices of America Online, she conveys that faith. Joe returns her sentiments, even reading Pride and Prejudice under her tutelage. And they fall in love. As the film brings the two together, reading and experience become one. You are what you read. With its love of books and transcendent ideal of reading, You've Got Mail provides a convenient entryway 
into a subject that has been engaging scholars on both sides of the Atlantic over the last two decades. The history of reading and of readers is central to the history of the book, David Hall announced nearly two decades ago in an influential lecture that helped to generate the American branch of this international scholarly endeavor. His was a summons to wide-ranging investigation. Who could read and write in the past, he asked. What titles and genres did they choose? What was the process by which persons responded to a text? Through such probes, Hall hoped to uncover the uses and meanings of literacy as a central theme in the history of culture and society. That goal remains, but in its pursuit, our scholarship has recently taken a distinct turn. Few students aspire to follow the lead of the historian Kenneth Lockridge and to quarry in official records for evidence of popular literacy. Though everyone's happy to employ his finding, the colonial New England achieved the highest rate of male literacy in the early modern world. Researchers are daunted, no doubt, by the tedious labor involved in counting signatures on wills and deeds and amassing that data into statistical tables. And they're discouraged even more by the ambiguity of the results. Reading and writing, we've since learned, were treated as separate skills. And many more people acquired the former than the latter. Nor has the late William Gilmore's approach, surveying records of book ownership, as indicated on inventories of estates, and charting the popularity of specific titles and of whole genres, that approach has not become a necessity of research. For such findings may disclose broad trends, the rise of the novel, growing curiosity about the contemporary world, for example, but they're plagued by uncertainty. Private libraries, even a small collection of Bibles, sermons, almanac, and primers were the privilege of the property. Listed and valued at the time of death, they revealed not what was read in a lifetime, but what was preserved in the home. It's no easy task to classify these holdings, to characterize their intellectual bent, and to identify them with particular social groups. In the final analysis, the fundamental mystery remains. How do people read and make meaning from these works? Unable to answer that question by quantitative methods, researchers have happily shifted direction. Today, the top of the agenda is reader response, the direct encounter of person and text. Witness the themes in recent studies, the codes and conventions of reading, the relation of author to reader, the personalization of print, reading and writing the self. This preoccupation is shared by specialists in history and literature alike. Among critics, it marks a decisive change in the interpretation of texts. No longer is meaning assumed to inhere in the poem or novel as constructed by the author and deciphered by the scholar. The current credo is that readers create the text anew appropriating characters, themes, images, phrases to serve their own needs and desires. As literary theory has taught us, language is indeterminate, its meanings multiple, and every effort to render a coherent world in words doomed to failure. 
In that very fluidity resides the creative force of books. Reading, as the scholar Janice Radway construes it, takes place in what she calls a space between, a space neither ordered by the text itself nor controlled by the reader, but one born of that special act of ventriloquism whereby the reader speaks another's words in populated solitude. A similar faith in individual agency animates historians. In the figure of Minocchio, the 16th century Italian miller, Carlo Ginsburg revealed the fertile mind and tenacious character of a humble but uncommon man who fashioned an iconoclastic worldview from wayward reading and defended it fiercely before the Roman Inquisition at the ultimate cost of his life. So too have feminist historians discerned in diaries and letters of women readers private dramas of resistance to patriarchal domination. On such presumptions of the reader's liberty, the French historian Roger Chartier has issued a manifesto for a field. Against the bleak view professed by Michel Foucault of individuals dominated by discourse, Chartier sets the lovely metaphor borrowed from Michel de Certeau of readers as poachers, slipping past the border guards of print and foraging freely where they may. The book, writes Chartier, always aims at installing an order, but readers always retain the cunning to circumvent and subvert, if not entirely elude that claim. Whatever the book's badges of authority, formidable size, lofty language, royal imprimatur, the book still requires the reader to give it meaning. And Chartier suggests that this dialectic between imposition and appropriation is the driving force of book history. Now it's tempting to endorse this stance, especially for an American, especially for an American speaking in Jefferson's Rotunda. What better suits our point of view than a progressive insistence upon the creativity of mind and the capacity of people to resist authority. Unwittingly, that outlook can turn history into a Whiggish contest between liberty and power. It assumes the contemporary ideal of reading, the quest for an authentic self through the written word, and it projects it back onto the past. It dissolves the cultural meaning of a text or a genre into a myriad of individual responses, all equally plausible. Putting a premium on fragmentation and individual freedom, this, risk, this approach risks becoming a celebration of Victorian values of liberal pluralism, suggests one scholar. And it never doubts that books and reading are and have always been good things. Well, that wasn't what the father of cultural critic Sven Burkertz thought when he found the boy lounging with his head in a book. What are you doing on the couch in the middle of the day? He erupted, as Burkertz recalls in the Gutenberg Elegies, lament for a vanishing world of print. You need something to do? I'll give you something to do. There has the long line of farmers, businessmen, and politicians who've scorned eggheads exalted the school hard knocks, and made anti-intellectualism in American tradition been well disposed to bookishness. To be sure, these practical men read newspapers omnivorously, 
We consulted guides on how to raise larger crops and build better houses. And like most people today, I suspect they were quite happy to follow the instructions literally when it served their interest. Who among us wants a user's manual, whether for car, computer, or the VCR you never learned to program, open to creative reading? A reader's fury is aroused by ambiguous passages requiring interpretation. And of course, those are only ever clarified by those Japanese little figures on the side of the page that you can't read until you get your reading glasses, but you can't do the work if you have your reading glasses on. (laughs) There are, after all, many kinds of texts addressed to varied ends, and no single theory can fit them all. What did individuals read for? The English historian James Raven asks. Were they reading to learn and understand? Were they reading to remember something and then apply the skill? Were they reading to gather information or to take a decision? Were they reading, at least apparently, for simple entertainment? Or were they reading, I would add, to identify with elites, to affiliate with imagined communities, or adopt the manners and styles necessary for upward mobility? None of these modalities of reading need stir contest with authority or foster intense experience. But they may, in fact, be the most common encounters we ever have with print. Even this pragmatic approach is too simple. For it smooths out the past into a familiar landscape whose sensible inhabitants are extensions of ourselves. We are thus unprepared unprepared to find in the historical record individuals like the young tailor John Dane who used the Bible to tell his fortune. The we here is historians of the United States not medievalists or classicists or or students of Southeast Asia, but the narrow provincial historians of the United States are unprepared to find John Dane. Uncertain whether to emigrate from England to America, this future settler of Puritan Massachusetts turned to the sacred word. I hastily took up the Bible, he wrote, and told my father if where I opened the Bible, there I met with anything either to encourage or discourage. That should settle me. I open of it, not knowing more than the child in the womb. The first I cast my eye on was, come out from among them, touch no unclean thing. On that authority he booked passage for the new world. And what about the African-American freedwoman whom a Scottish traveler encountered in the Reconstruction South? A pious Christian, she could identify only the symbols for Jesus in the Bible. But that was enough. Opening the New Testament at random, she would trace her finger through the scripture, word by word, page by page, until she came upon the sign for her Lord. And oh, she said, according to the traveler, how that name started up like a light in the dark. And I said, there's the name of my Jesus. It was the only one word I knew. But that one word made me hunger for more. Such incidents reveal the past to be a foreign country where familiar acts can assume unaccustomed meanings and forms. Robert Darton has been pressing that insight in his widely read but little imitated essays. Readings and mystery, he observes, both familiar and foreign, is an activity that we share with our ancestors that can never be the same as what they experienced. The challenge is to shed the illusion of stepping outside of time and to recover the strangeness of the past. A history of reading, he writes, if it can ever be written, 
would chart the alien element in the way man has made sense of his world. Seen in this light, the vision of reading and You've Got Mail and its 19th century precursors is hardly universal. It constitutes one among many versions that have, that have coexisted, competed, and commingled in American and Western culture from early on and still do. Reading, I want to suggest, is best seen as a cultural practice carried out in particular settings and styles linked to specific groups and informed with ideological meanings. The challenge is to recover such practices in their full richness, to track their trajectories across time and space, and to describe the patterns of continuity and change. A history of reading so conducted becomes a study of cultural formation in action, to use the apt formulation of the historian James Secord. That's a formidable task. Yet I want to suggest that we do even more, that we step back and reflect on the conundrum that puzzled the cinematic bookseller, Kathleen Kelly, the relation between reading and experience. What does it mean to see the world through print? Reading is most immediately an experience in its own right, made available as cultural practice. But its impact on personal and collective experience remains unclear. Books, Ralph Waldo Emerson once suggested, are for the scholar's idle times. When he can read God directly, the hour is too precious to be wasted in other men's transcripts of their readings. The contemporary Canadian writer Alberto Manguel's mother put the matter more simply. Go out and live! His mother would say when she saw him reading, as if his silent activity contradicted her sense of what it meant to be alive. Such formulations sunder reading from living. And that relation, we know, is more complex. Aid to existence one moment, reading can confuse it the next. Books can be refuge from life's pain, compensation for its deficits, enhancement of its pleasures, barrier to its promise, threat to its survival. The heroic reader of contemporary scholarship, the creative individual who contests authority, appropriates meaning, and fashions the self, needs to get beyond textual struggles and confront the wider challenges of experience. Or, as my teenage children once put it, get a life. A history of reading, then, is not just a chart of reader response. It must encompass both the social organization of reading and its conduct among varied forms of work and leisure, ritual and routine, and communication in the past. In that complex configuration lie important clues to the changing character of society and culture. So that's the big reflection on theories about the study of reading. Let me turn now to give you a short survey of what I take to be two leading representations of reading in American culture, which have endured and adapted to changing contexts from, co from colonial times to the present. When Kathleen Kelly stirred on film with passion for print, she hardly resembled the 17th century Puritan, certainly not in the figure of Meg Ryan. But arguably, the thrill she saw in the written word, rapturous encounter with other realities, 
vital communication with other souls, had its roots in the cultural practice of reading in colonial New England and in the Western Christian world before that. To the evangelical Christians who aspired to build a new Israel in the American wilderness, the Bible, the book above all books, was the living word of God. The utterance of his own most hallowed lips. In the pages of scripture, they heard the voice of Christ speaking directly to the hungry soul. As St. Paul had assured them, the gospel had been written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Whether preached from the pulpit, written down in manuscript, or printed in cold type, the holy text was the pure, unmediated communication of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, Puritans invested the act of reading with sacred purpose, approached the text in a devout spirit. The New England clergy advised, ponder the words slowly and carefully, literally chew them over like a cow with its cud so as to absorb the goodness into the soul. Underline passages you find most relishing, or make notes in the margin that you may easily and more quickly find them again. And to judge by your work here, leave evidence for future scholars. This was the style, and, and, and what one advisor added, once or twice reading over a book is not enough. This was the style that has come to be known to historians as intensive reading. The reverend returned to the same sacred text day by day, year by year, over the course of a life. The faithful heard the gospel at Sunday meeting, read it aloud at home, consulted it in the closet. And not just the Bible. Sermons, hymnals, and guides to devotion were treated the same way. As preachers of the word, Puritan ministers claimed its divine aura for their own works. The Holy Spirit spoke through them. And so too might it touch ordinary men and women. Ultimately, reading was but the means to an end, the experience of divine grace. At stake was eternal life. Every aspect of communication, speaking and hearing, reading and writing, was as fraught with blessings or perils for the soul. In the capacity of speech, it was said, man did most resemble angels. But on this earth, unlike heaven, sweet sounds did not prevail. The human tongue could be exceedingly good or excessively evil. Protestant reformers promoted godly speech both at the meeting house where they developed a new style of plain preaching, and in daily life, where they aimed to govern their tongues. All sorts of talk that enlivened early modern villages and embroiled them in conflict, scolding and libeling, bloody jokes and blasphemous oaths, were subject to peer pressure and criminal sanction in New England. Puritan eyes as well as ears were shut to profane ballads and lewd jests. When thou canst read, advised the Reverend Thomas White, read no ballads and foolish books, but the Bible. Not everybody was listening on either side of the Atlantic. Alas, lamented the anonymous author of The History of Genesis, published in 1690, how often do we see parents prefer Tom Thumb, Guy of Warwick, Valentine and Orson, or some other foolish book before the Book of Life? Although they never stopped inveighing against popular tastes, the moral arbiters had no more success keeping such chapbooks and merriments out of the region 
than out of the hands of idle youth. The sacred use of literacy could at times verge on superstition. John Dane, the Puritan immigrant, treated the Bible like a crystal ball. Many used it to pick names for their children. And for one trusting soul, it was a talisman against evil. During an Indian attack on his village during King Philip's War in the late 1760s, he sat in the, in the town common, calmly reading the good book. As it turned out, he was the only casualty of the day. <laughs> For most Puritans, the Bible was not a magical totem, but a tabernacle of the spirit, which they longed to enter. And it was this vision of books and reading they bequeathed to later generations of Americans. Remember that I'm speaking to you all the while you have the book before you. That's what Cotton Mather told recipients as he delighted in giving away copies of his books. As originating spirit, the author was one with the text, animating its every word. The ideal communication brought two souls together in intimate communication. I said that wrong. The ideal communication brought two souls together in intimate conversation. On these terms, evangelicals have searched for salvation in every wave of revivals in American history. In the middle decades of the 19th century, they seized upon the latest innovations in printing technology, the steam-powered press, the stereotype plate, to produce Bibles and tracts by the millions, and a crusade to convert every American to Christ. Armed with these pamphlets, college students traveled country roads to the darkest corners of the land, peddling the word from door to door and giving away books as freely as Cotton Mather. These were often the same texts that had circulated in Mather's time, the steady sellers of Protestant piety, and they were read in the same intensive spirit. It's not the bees touching of the flowers that gathers honey, but are abiding for a time upon them and drawing out the sweet, urged one missionary newspaper in 1851. It's not he that reads most, but he that meditates most that will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Far from expiring in an expansive age of capitalism and democracy, the Puritan vision of literacy endured, contrary to the claims of historians who have detected a shift from what they call intensive to extensive reading in this era. The colonists, it's been argued, read the same books over and over, because they had no choice. In an age of scarcity, it said books were few and costly. But the publishing revolution of the 19th century generated a new world of abundance. With access to a vast array of titles for every taste, Americans cast aside old habits, embraced diversity and choice, and began reading extensively. The new economy was incompatible with the old piety, or so the interpretation goes. Nobody told the evangelicals. They still read the Bible the old way, even as their presses poured forth cheap tales of Christian conversion. In their view, mass printing was a gift from God, a spiritual telegraph designed for sacred ends. Too often it was misused for base purposes, supplying infidel and immoral fare for the sake of commercial profit. But properly conducted, it was a boon to mankind. Thanks to modern technology, the gospel with its universal promise of salvation could spread all over the globe. The medium was not the message. 
And so it has gone with every major advance in communication since. Radio put revivalism on the airwaves. Television has brought forth an electronic church and a Christian broadcast network. And the New Testament is, of course, free on the World Wide Web. The sacred practice of reading left a lasting mark on American literary culture. In the first half of the 19th century, the Calvinism of the Puritan fathers lost its hold on New England's leading intellectuals. But the ethic of plain living and high thinking remained. For all his talk of finding God in nature, Ralph Waldo Emerson, trained as a Unitarian minister, looked to books for intense spiritual experience, just as his clerical forebears had done. When the mind is braced by labor and invention, he proclaimed, the page of whatever book we read becomes luminous with manifold allusion. Instead of salvation, Emerson sought epiphanies in text, the illumination of truth in one mind by another. And so too, Henry David Thoreau converted the act of reading into a strenuous exercise of the spirit. It requires a training such as the athletes underwent, he declared in Walden, the steady intention almost of the whole life to this object. Books must be read as deliberately and reservedly as they were written. And so their covers should be designed, as you can see from the Margaret Armstrong designs for the covers on Walden and Thoreau's other works, in the case immediately behind me. It's tempting to think that such visions were confined to a narrow intelligentsia. Not at all. The businessmen, professionals, and politicians who patronized the Richmond, Virginia Library Company in the 1840s and 1850s threw themselves into the works of Walter Scott with the same intensity that evangelicals poured into the Bible and devotional texts. One Waverly novel was seldom enough. Readers would go on binges with Scott, racing through four or five titles in a row, usually one a week, often following the sequence of the collected edition and occasionally returning to favorites a few years later. Absorbed in a fictional world that afforded, in one admiring estimation, all varieties of science, information, profession, and character, these readers were evidently eager to commune with the man in the imagination, the cheerful, healthy, vigorous, sympathetic, good-natured and broad-natured Walter Scott himself. There's this ideal of friendly reading, as one scholar calls it, that shaped the conventions of fiction in 19th century America. To read a novel was not just to meet the characters and follow a plot. It was also to converse with the author, as if sitting in a parlor among friends. On that basis of trust, the reader could throw herself into the story, confident of the narrator's goodwill. When modernist writers in the late 19th and 20th century refused that relation and and withdrew from the text, readers felt betrayed. Fleeing the cold and personal world of experimental fiction, they found a warm welcome in the Book of the Month Club, started in 1926. That middle-brow enterprise, as the scholar Janet Radway portrays it, was dedicated to books that could capture the regard of readers and compel their emotions. Its ethos was defined by Henry Canby, the editor and critic who led the selection committee. What he craved in books was what he called deep reading, total immersion in a text. Such reading lifted the individual to a new state of thinking and feeling. 
Reading for experience, he affirmed, is the only reading that justifies excitement. It's transforming. Neither man nor woman is ever quite the same again as the, after the experience of a book that enters deeply into life. Deep reading was, in fact, a secular conversion experience. In the pages of a book, the reader is born again. And though Camby was choosing texts for the professional middle class in a corporate world, he was carrying on the tradition of Puritan preachers and of New England intellectuals. Appropriately, he wrote a biography of Thoreau. His ideal of reading, as Radway tells us, guided Book of the Month Club readers down through the 1980s, and it inspires film characters like Kathleen Kelly and You've Got Mail Today. That's one reading practice. Reading practice we call personalism. At its opposite pole is a style I want to call rational reading, a cultural practice with equally deep roots in American life. As an ideal, it developed with the, along with the printing press in early modern Europe. As Elizabeth Eisenstein has shown, early printing houses gathered learned men of diverse nations and faiths, Christians, Jews, Arabs, into cosmopolitan and ecumenical communities where they collaborated on works of broad scholarship. The Reformation and Counter-Reformation disrupted such endeavors. That model of cooperation had enormous appeal, and in the 18th century, it inspired the conduct of learned culture. Through networks of correspondence that crossed the Atlantic, educated men shared the results of scientific research into the natural world. Their intellectual outlook was empirical. In the advancement of learning, they pledged allegiance to facts and experiments, not authority and tradition. That commitment nurtured a cool sensibility, geared to logic and reason and detached from emotion, especially in religion. The goal of learning was, after all, to be useful to improve the condition of humankind. And to that end, freedom of inquiry was indispensable. Men of learning required the right to pursue ideas for their own sake, without restraint by state or church. They had the obligation as well to rise above prejudice and assist fellow seekers of truth, whatever their country. That rationalist idea was embodied in the American Philosophical Society, incorporated in Philadelphia in 1780. Its founders saw the group as one of many societies of liberal and ingenious men uniting in their labors without regard to nation, sect, or party in one grand pursuit. All belonged in principle to an international republic of letters. For all its claim to be impartial and disinterested, this vision of learning culture had powerful political consequences. It challenged the old order of the 18th century with a new model of social organization. In the influential formulation of the German sociologist Jürgen Habermas, it brought into being a critical public sphere, an autonomous realm, independent of state and church and separate from the household, in which men could share their thoughts about civic affairs. This form arose in a variety of sites, in coffee houses and taverns, in clubs and salons, any place where people could gather and talk freely about politics. It took shape as well in print, notably in the newspapers springing up in the leading cities throughout the Anglo-American world. As a medium of public debate, the press acquired 
fresh meaning. No longer would it radiate a personal spirit, human or divine. Rejecting that evangelical view, the champions of the public sphere recast print in impersonal terms. Its cold type, they said, carried abstract truth. Detached from specific persons, the newspaper was identified with the general public. In its pages, citizens followed the rule of reason. They discussed principles, not personalities. They forswore self-interest for the common good. The voice of the press was anonymous, speaking for everyone in general and nobody in particular. They could claim to represent a new force, that of public opinion, that was constituted in its columns of type. It thus embodied the sovereignty of the people. The republic was born in print. Well, that was the vision, according to the historian Michael Warner, held by the patriot elite that led the American Revolution and established a new nation under the Constitution. In its terms, the cultural practice of literacy was remade. In pamphlets and newspapers, critics of the mother country assumed the personae of virtuous statesmen from Greece and Rome, of Aristides, of Cato, of Cicero, Demosthenes, and they started their essays with learned references to antiquity. Their duty, as they saw it, was to expose the danger of imperial measures, to set forth the causes and consequences of the crisis, and to lay out a reasoned plan of resistance. The responsibility of the public was to read and reflect, and ultimately to support the gentlemen who spoke in their name. Fired up by the Republican mission, John Adams proclaimed in the Boston Gazette that the people have a right an indisputable, unalienable, indefeasible divine right to that most dreaded and envied kind of knowledge, I mean, of the character and conduct of their rulers. Let no one dare to take it away. Who read these essays? And in what cultural mode? For all the talk about critical reason as the key to the public sphere, we know little about its actual exercise. To judge from the newspapers, there was a large gap between ideals and practice. Initially, the gentlemen who penned the disquisitions on liberty wrote for educated readers like themselves. Presumably, these privileged communications would be passed along to the common people by their betters. When I mentioned the the public, the Virginian John Randolph explained in 1774, I mean to include only the rational part of it. The ignorant vulgar are as unfit to judge of the modes as they are unable to manage the reins of government. But in the course of the revolutionary movement, the patriot elite had to mobilize the lower orders, the farmers, the mechanics, and laborers, for a fight that demanded force and numbers as well as reason. Politics was quickly popularized with a rapid transformation of public rhetoric. No longer could gentlemen assume with Thomas Jefferson that the audience for their words would be an assembly of reasonable men. Instead, they had to compete for public favor against upstarts with little education who didn't hesitate to exploit prejudice against aristocracy, accuse opponents of self-interest, and employ a fiery emotional style in public debate. That is, Patrick Henry. Then again, the political elite was willing to play the same game to get its way. 
In the campaign for the Constitution, Federalists jettisoned the ideal of anonymity. They invoked the spectacle of names, urging voters to follow the lead of Washington and Jefferson. If they like the Constitution, so should you. And they closed the pages of their newspapers to contributors who declined to reveal their identities. Once their opponents were known to be mere plow joggers and mechanics, the Federalists expected, nobody would take their opinion seriously. By the time the Constitution was ratified, the new nation was a far cry from a rational republic. The ideal of an informed citizenry endured, at least in the political elite. But the republicanism of the founders had to adapt to popular culture, and the result was the mass democracy of the Jacksonian age. To his everlasting disappointment, Jefferson could not persuade the Virginia legislature to fund his scheme for tax-supported public education for all white men. Nor could George Washington, James Madison, or John Quincy Adams get Congress to establish a national university. The course of American politics would be guided not by an enlightened elite, but by professional politicians at the helm of competitive parties. In the heyday of 19th century politics, Democrats got out to vote with huge rallies and torchlight parades and summonses to battle in the party press. Whigs and then Republicans did the same. Nobody tried very hard to win over the other side with rational argument. That notion gained credence in American life only in the progressive era, when reformers successfully pressed measures, civil service, the Australian ballot, the referendum, to strengthen the role of the expert and to empower the independent citizen. Parties abandoned their spectacular campaigning, all those tor torchlight parades, and concentrated on delivering their message through an ever more professional press. Thanks to these changes, supporters of good government anticipated an age of informed citizens, rationally considering the issues, weighing the arguments of all parties, obtaining essential knowledge from a responsible press. Instead, scholar Michael Schutzen notes, the citizens themselves began a retreat from political activity. Voter turnout dropped precipitously and the fate of democratic rule seemed very much in doubt. Okay, this survey on ra of rational reading in the public sphere is heavy on ideology, weak on practice. It highlights the tension between civic ideals and popular democracy. And in the process, it subtly disparages the self-education of common people. In this model, elites, or at least a few intellectuals, discuss issues calmly and rationally while the masses are moved only by passion and interest. That premise understates the powerful drive of women, of blacks, and of other groups to inform themselves and to challenge their traditional exclusion from suffrage and office. And that model forgets that the privileged classes are no less prone to prejudice and selfishness than those they presume to rule. A similar objection arises to the opposition I pose between reading practices. And now we move to my attempt to evaluate these different reading practices and their ideologies, rational reading and personalism. Are personalism and rational reading as incompatible in reality as I've made them appear in principle? Must individuals decide between subjective immersion in texts and impartial, and impartial encounters and disembodied ideas? 
so our history of reading inadvertently suggests. Notwithstanding considerable evidence that people in the past saw no need for such choice. In the 18th century, sense sensibility frequently went hand in hand. As Robert Darton has shown, French readers could embrace the encyclopedist's indictment of the Ancien Regime as contrary to reason and nature, even as they indulged what they called the delicious outpourings of the heart in response to Rousseau's Nouvelle Eloise. Thomas Jefferson, for one, had no problem with this logic. As a gentleman of letters devoted to Enlightenment ideals, he preferred to compose and circulate his manuscripts for select coteries. And when he did put his writings before the general public, he invariably sought to remain anonymous. So adroitly did he conceal the private personality behind the public man that Jefferson remains to this day an American Sphinx. Nonetheless, America's philosopher statesman cherished the heart as well as the head. In 1771, he drew up a list of books for the education of a gentleman, numbering 148 titles in all. Not surprisingly, politics, law, ancient and modern history, and natural philosophy comprise much of the collection. But it also included a good many works of poetry, drama, and fiction. For Jefferson, novels were a powerful instrument for promoting the principles and practices of virtue. Enlisting the emotions in imaginary scenes, they stirred up the moral feelings and fostered a habit of thinking and acting virtuously. We never reflect whether the story we read be truth or fiction, Jefferson advised the young man, his future brother-in-law Robert Skipwith, from whom he compiled a catalog. If the painting be lively and a tolerable picture of nature, we're thrown into a reverie from which if we awaken the fault of the writer. I appeal to every reader of feeling and sentiment whether the fictitious murder of Duncan by Macbeth in Shakespeare does not excite in him as great a horror of villainy as the real one of Henry IV by Ravillac as related by de Villa. The ideal Republican was a man of feeling and reason alike. 19th century Christians displayed their own breadth of interests and taste. For many evangelicals, piety and intellect were allies in a common cause. Consider the case of a young man named Matthew Floyd, a devout Methodist who yearned to bring the light of the gospel to everyone, even the most humble beggar. Living in lower Manhattan during the 1830s, he had his work cut out for him. By day, the young man, then in his 20s, still single, and residing in his parents' home, kind of nightmare of 21st century parents, <laughs> labored in the family nursery business. In leisure hours, he attended Methodist class meeting, taught Sunday school, and devoted much of his time to books. He also courted the woman he eventually wed. As he prepared himself for the duties of adult life, Floyd sought models in his reading, a record of which he faithfully kept in a diary from 1833 to 1837. In that four-year period, he bought more than 200 books and read over 100 of them. To judge from some of his choices and comments, this denizen of Jacksonian America was still living in the colonial past. His reading fair consisted of the Bible, 
which he consulted daily in a pocket-sized version he always had with him, and such steady sellers of evangelical Protestantism as Philip Diedrich's spiritual biography of the Christian soldier James Gardner, first issued in 1747. In these devotional texts, Floyd sought examples of what he called ardent piety. He shunned altogether the popular genre of the novel. It was, in his opinion, a source of moral pollution, responsible for creating a greater part of the prostitutes in the world. And he paid no heed to the emerging penny press, the tabloids of the day. Cotton Mather would definitely have approved. And yet, Floyd was also a man of his times, and driven by a thirst for knowledge, he bought many contemporary books with his secular bent, especially volumes of history and biography. In the interest of forming his character, he took up whatever he conceived to be useful. One unlikely choice was the Earl of Chesterfield's letters to his son. Late 18th century work suspect for its lax morals and its cynical advice for getting ahead. Floyd was appalled by Chesterfield's wicked counsel of hypocrisy, and yet he was prepared to separate the wheat from the chaff. The author's elegant style, he acknowledged, could be put to profitable use, both in literature and in life. I'm determined after reading his lordship's injunctions to apply myself more to the art of pleasing than before. Nature has given me the faculty. Intent on becoming a Christian gentleman, Floyd was open to Chesterfield's lessons in politeness, even as he aspired to put them to evangelical ends. In this instance and many others, Floyd was ready to take advantage of diverse genres of print. Read in the proper spirit, godly and worldly books belong on the same shelf. So it's only by grappling with such concrete details as documented in diaries and letters and library circulation records and inventories of estates that we can get beyond ideology and witness the actual practice of reading in everyday life. For this purpose, bibliographical skills are indispensable. How else to determine the meaning of an individual's reading? but by reconstructing title by title the work she assembled and read. In this inquiry, the physical character of a book may matter as much as its contents. Most students of reading have ignored that essential point. A book, after all, is more than a text. And it does not spring directly from its creator's head. Only through the collaborative effort of diverse agents, papermakers, compositors, pressmen, proofreaders, binders, publishers, shippers, retailers, not to mention authors and many others, do books actually make their way to readers? Well, what impact does the material form of a book have on its cultural connotations? One example. Can a collective product express a personal voice? Pious Christians have always thought so. God can speak in any medium. Scroll or codex? Manuscript or print, prayer, psalm, or burning bush. In practice, though, some forms can seem more appropriate than others. Jean Ranson, a French Protestant enthusiast of Rousseau, informed his bookseller, the Bible should appear in a folio edition. It's more, majest more majestic and more imposing in the eyes of the multitude 
for whom this divine book is intended. It was perhaps easy to conceive of books as personal expressions in the early modern period, when every aspect of their creation was done by hand. But how did the ideology of personalism survive in the industrial age? With great difficulty, according to the historian Paul Goodyear, who maintains that the word of God lost its divine aura in the era of mass production by steam-powered machines. But that seems unlikely, given that Amsterdam printers were already stereotyping the Bible in the 17th century, as the late Hugh Amory has observed, and churned out some three million copies over the 18th century. The links between form and content remain elusive. And these are some of the links that would seem to me to be a wonderful challenge for anyone at Rare Book School to figure out. Well, what then of the relation between reading and experience? The act of reading, I suggest, is invested with diverse meanings by the larger culture, even as it takes shape in encounters with specific texts. No individual approaches a book as a tabula rasa. And no one's compelled to take dictation from an author. Modernist writers could not win readers whose tastes ran to warm-blooded narratives. However reading is constructed, it surely plays a variety of roles in everyday life. It can, of course, enable individuals to imagine new worlds for themselves and thereby challenge constraints on their lives. That was clearly the case for many women readers, for blacks, and for all sorts of restless young men on New England's farms. But is the conversion of reading into experience always a good thing? In the mid-19th century, a pornography of violence emerged as a literary genre, offering up graphic accounts of rape, torture, and murder to male readers in northern cities. Why the surge of bloodlust? One reason may be a new sensitivity to pain and suffering in antebellum culture. Spurred by that impulse, Americans put an end to the carnival of the gallows assigned the management of funerals to undertakers, and removed other physical functions from public view. Denied access to concrete experience, people embraced the lurid fantasies of the press. Or maybe the appeal of pornography was to a beleaguered working men who were losing autonomy at work owing to industrialization and coming under attack for their traditional pastimes of hard drinking, cockfighting, boxing, and wrestling being deprived of them by bourgeois reformers who told them, read a book. Repressed in life, their manly passions rioted in texts. In this case, it was surely a good thing readers didn't put their reading into practice. Sadly, we cannot say the same for the millions who consumed racist stereotypes in the press and made them all too real. In such cases, rational reading takes on a moral imperative. So ultimately... Neither the complexities of experience nor the contradictions of human nature can be captured in the pages of a book. No reading practice can overcome that gap. A history of reading thus needs not merely to log the response of individuals to texts, but to assay the complex modes in which people connect textual encounters with the rest of their lives. It's surely only a happy moral for a Hollywood film to hope that reading experience will always be one. Thank you.